Hello and welcome to the Women in ERP podcast. I'm your host and community founder, Abigail Allman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, who's a major advocate for Women in ERP and sales director for IFS, Stephanie Poor. Hi, Steph. Hi, Abby. Joining us today is Michael Weesey. Michael is the Group Chief Operating Officer at IFS and also a member of the board for Think Project. Thank you for coming on to work today, Michael. Thank you for having me today. Welcome. (laughs) Thanks, Steph. (laughs) Yes, you two know each other very well. (laughs) Colleagues. (laughs) Absolutely, we do. Yeah, interesting what stories you can tell us about Steph later on, Michael. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I find it fantastic that as a leading voice in ERP, you are an avid listener to the Women in ERP podcast. And I'm equally impressed that as a male leader in the field, you wanted to join us today to offer your perspective and insight. Also, I believe it's your birthday today. So happy birthday, Michael. (laughs) Yeah, happy birthday. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, well, it's actually an inspiration to to be able to be with you today for my birthday. So, so thanks for having me at this special day. Oh, good. Thank you. So shall we just get into it and find out a little bit more about you, Michael? Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what life was like for you growing up? Okay, cool. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I've... Uh, I think you can imagine, and and you know that uh, I'm the son of uh, a migrant to Germany, migrating into Germany in the late '60s, which probably wasn't uh, the most friendly environment, and uh, coming there as what you call a so-called guest worker, so uh, not intended to stay, not intended to integrate. Uh, that plan was obviously made without my father, it seems. So uh, he he got uh, married uh, with a German and uh, got a child, founded a family and built a career. So I I think what that told me and what that taught me and the values they gave me were basically, look, you are in charge of your own fate and uh, you have to make the best of what society, what the parents and whatever uh, education you can get, uh, you have to make the best out of that and uh, drive your own fate, really. And uh, they've always done that. And uh, they've taught me those values. They've taught me really how to how to not accept a no and how to work with, against all the unconscious bias that you would find, sometimes conscious or sometimes unconscious, actually. Did either of them work in the technology field? None of them worked in the technology field at all. No. Okay. So, so it wasn't actually the, 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 that I had the great role models of, Technology is something you need to be in. I've never had that. So getting to technology was probably much more of an accident than anything else. I guess they were inspirational to you in terms of how hard they worked and um, giving you all the opportunities that they could. Yeah, I mean, look, I grew up with a working mom. For me, there was never a question that everybody would go out there and try to uh, do the best to actually raise a family, give everybody the best opportunities you could. And in that case, that was me benefiting from them plus the support network because Germany wasn't back then and probably still isn't uh, the greatest leader in terms of uh, uh, building support networks outside the family for 
working couples. So um, that that whole support network and and my parents actually uh, gave me that opportunity, and uh, it's it's not my responsibility, or it has been my responsibility to make the best of it. Then. Yeah, absolutely. So, what was your early relationship with technology like? Was a career in tech part of your grand plan? Look, when I grew up and went to school, there was no internet. Okay, so there, there was there was phones that my son wouldn't know how to operate. You could play guess your age now. <laughs> so, so, so really, there, there was there was no discussion about tech at that point in time. The the, the most progressive was like uh, teletext and stuff like that. So, so there, there wasn't there wasn't a big tech career that I had in mind. Uh, that, so, so the answer is really no. But I was always very much into tech. So when the first uh, C64s were out there, yeah, I was impressed by having summer games or, or games like that, which still fit on a couple of uh, four, four and a quarter inch uh, floppy disks. Yeah. So, so that was where I started. I, I took, I took classes in, in coding, but I mean, that was playing around with it really. So never meant to be a career, to be honest. Floppy disks, that's a blast from the past. That was uh, my childhood in terms of school. <laughs> it's funny yeah. now when you show kids now a floppy disk, they're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> I've got no idea. They well, and, and if you try to explain them, that was that was maybe a megabyte, yeah, and you could actually fit a whole game on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's crazy. I don't even think my nieces and nephews really understand, like, CDs and DVD players because they just download it. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. it is crazy. It's so easy for them yeah. now, isn't it? <laughs> so we previously spoke about um, school and university being the best time of your life. So why was this portion of your early education so impactful? Well, n- number one is uh, I always felt blessed, actually, that uh, that I had the, ed- the the opportunity to have that education. I mean, you can't take it for granted when you're working family background that actually you will have the opportunity to 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 be in school, get the best education at university as well, free of charge. So society does a lot for you, and uh, I th- I think in in that case, it was my responsibility to take the opportunity and then change society with what I've learned and uh, and also help the little changes I can affect, help to make them and help to change people's minds. So I always felt that university and and, and school was a blessing. And to be honest, it was also great fun. <laughs> and I, I guess given, um, you know, we've talked about uh, coming from an immigrant uh, background, in terms of um, your school life and kind of early, let's call it career, was, did you ever feel like there was that unconscious bias? Did you ever feel there was challenges that perhaps weren't quite fair just because of your background or... There's there's always unconscious bias. There's there's a great thing in Germany where on a CD you actually have to put a picture of yourself on a CD. So it's not just the name by which people can guess that I'm probably not uh, German by heritage uh, the the past five generations, but it's also the picture. So I don't know if that was the same for everyone else uh, that in the beginning you got a lot of rejections, uh, but quite frankly you need to make the best of it. And I always said when I'm in an interview they will understand so so really it wasn't it was a numbers game getting into the interviews and then and then you actually can work against the unconscious bias and tackle it yeah but the first step is you have to acknowledge there is unconscious bias it's not even really ill-spirited or or intended 
yeah agreed it's, it's unconscious isn't it so you, you don't actually know you're doing it it's kind of inbuilt yeah. so you can't I guess be angry at people for that but you can help them try and change that so you I believe did you study at Manchester University yeah I, I did my executive MBA there so so it was like on and off uh, I didn't did a lot of uh, uh, work at home but then actually I had my times in Manchester and actually in Wales as well so so it was oh, wow. Manchester and Wales uh, so so yeah no it was was quite an interesting time yeah. quite a different system to work in in terms of uh, uh, schooling and education so very different things required of you than in my traditional German background yeah I can imagine it's slightly different yeah culturally I guess the difference between Manchester and Germany, Manchester and Tunisia also. <laughs> How did you find that? Did you adapt quite well or was it a struggle? Look, I, I did work and live with uh, lots of different cultures anyway. So, so I, I wouldn't say it was, it was a struggle, but adjusting to an education system, which is much less about learning stuff and being able to repeat it, but actually applying things to uh, what you learned to case studies and so on what was was a different approach and and that's that was a very different thing for me and uh, and I had to adjust to it really but it was actually a great experience to to learn how you can tackle things as well and uh, it, it broadens your mind really so yeah. no I, did, I didn't think it was was any challenging it was just uh, you, you had to open your mind to it yeah yeah I completely relate to that because I, I spent some time at university in, in the states and again, it's very different kind of learning experience. And I was a bit kind of like, well, what's this? I just have to almost regurgitate what I'm told as opposed to have to think and, like you say, apply it and do essays and stuff. In fact, I don't think I wrote a single essay in a whole year, which was just completely different to what I'd done previously. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, the different learning styles? It is, absolutely. So what led you then from your degree in economics to a career in tech? How did that? happen first step actually wasn't I don't know if I'm allowed to say that but I, I, I was actually in finance so I, I grew up in finance in in different industries actually my first steps were as a consultant in a consulting company what dealing with finance and restructuring topics uh, with the largest companies in Germany in corporate Germany really and then from there I moved on to being a uh, controller, finance, uh, CFO, finance director, stuff like that. And uh, at some stage, I think people thought I was good with customers as well. And that's when I moved on to the dark side of things, taking care of uh, customers and, and uh, making sure they are successful. What are the main challenges that you've personally faced in your career? I think the main challenge is really having a seat at the table. Once you've got a seat at the table, you can convince people. Okay. Yeah. Uh, getting to that seat is sometimes hard because unconscious uh, bias actually closes doors. Mm -hmm. and you need to actually push those doors open. And uh, that's, I think, the biggest challenge. And uh, I mean, great examples of unconscious bias are people actually uh, telling you that you're one of the successful migrants. Yeah. And I actually had a customer, and that's not in the 1970s, I had a customer telling me that a couple of years ago. Yeah, that that it's amazing how how I became a successful migrant, and uh, that they had examples of that themselves. Yeah, so yeah, and I tell you, no harm intended by those people. They they would 
they would think that we had a great relationship and uh, that they probably made me a compliment. But it's just that unconscious bias that keeps you away from the seat at the table. Mm-hmm. When they see a CV, when they actually look at uh, uh, your face, when they when they don't talk to you, but actually select to not or choose to not talk to you before before they actually and um, um, and before before they've heard anything of you. How do you feel in a situation like that when you've recognized something but they don't realize what they're doing? Does it just sort of kind of take you back a bit? How do, or do you just let it wash over you? Or does it motivate you? Like uh, I'd be wanting to prove it a bit more. I'll show you. <laughs> well, it, it definitely depends on the situation, but yeah, uh, I mean, if it's a private setting, I'll I'll probably tackle it uh, heads on. If it's a uh, business setting, it's a customer. I'll probably try and and prove to them that uh, whatever they are thinking is ridiculous and uh, at, at best uh, probably harm that was not intended. But uh, it's different ways of dealing with it. But to be honest, I'm, I'm very bad at not speaking my mind. So uh, um, I, I will always raise my voice and I will always tell that customer that, look, uh, uh, technically I'm, I'm probably not a migrant. I, I grew up here. I was born here. I was educated here. And and maybe my German is better also. So so can, can can we leave that behind us and and just deal with uh, with our business issues? But it's it's uh, it's different approaches. But I'm I don't take offense. That's that's important because I know unless it's really conscious bias or it's conscious uh, uh, harm and uh, harm intended. But uh, I, I don't take offense if people are doing the typical stuff like where where are you from. Yeah. Yeah. Those questions. I mean, it's like what from Dortmund in Germany. So uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, I, I don't I don't take offense there. That's good. So, and how do you use those experiences that you've had to positively impact the sort of next generation or your workforce? Um, I, I think the the most important thing you do is, uh, or you can do, is to create consciousness, to make sure that people are aware that those things are there. There is unconscious bias. There are doors which which are locked and, and you have to open them. You have to help people to open them. You have to actually make people aware that actually the people who are sitting in the room very often aren't aware that actually the door is closed. So you need to, you need to actually make them aware. You need to create consciousness and you need to make sure that then when the door is open, that there are people actually who've got the courage to actually step into the room as well. Yeah. So, um, and, and there are very practical things you can do, obviously. Yeah. Do you find you're quite open about who you are and your background and, and all of that amongst people that you work with? Are they all aware of, of Michael and where he comes from? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure they are. I would probably say I'm not the most forthcoming person in terms of sharing private things uh, with with everyone I work with. Um, that's uh, that's very different to my private personality, I think. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I will when I trust people. But it's uh, it's it's not my it's not my personal style to be very upfront about. Look, I'm coming from this background, and I'm I'm that's that's what put me uh, that that's what got me here because I, I feel I feel that creates a lot of pressure as well yeah, yeah. and I don't want people I to actually, to actually think about where I came from who I am when they when they work with me and talk to me about it uh, they should focus on how we get things done in the company together with me 
And uh, when we want to have a private relationship, we can we can choose to do so. Absolutely. So as COO at IFS, what does your day-to-day look like? Hectic, very diverse. Let's break that down. I'm, I'm uh, COO. Uh, I, I own everything that's customer-facing. So from sales to pre-sales to cloud operations, support, consulting delivery. So everything that really touches our customers is uh, in some way, shape or form reports into me. So that's why no day is like the other. It, it is very unstructured. Uh, I, I can be talking to a customer about uh, how we create enormous value for them. I can be on a steer co the next hour with a customer. I can have internal calls uh, around quality improvement initiatives or how we how we actually accelerate some sales motion so so it's it's a very unstructured and very very diverse day i would say i bet i can imagine yeah no, no two hours are the same let alone two days i can imagine <laughs> and is it it's, it's on a global basis so you're dealing with people in different countries it's not just germany are you working around the clock is it <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm trying not to <laughs> <laughs> pretty feels like it <laughs> Well, it requires some discipline to not actually look at what the U.S. does uh, and, and at midnight, and then uh, talk to talk to Australia a few minutes past midnight. So uh, it, it requires some discipline and and really a great team, to be honest. And uh, I trust in my team, so I'm I'm not working uh, around the clock, and That's it wouldn't be sustainable. Either. No, you can't do that. And how do you, how do you, I guess there's lots of different cultures involved as well. So you're kind of having to switch cultures, uh, context, a bit of everything. So I guess how, how, do you find that a challenge or is it, you know, you just, I guess, get on with it? No, it is, it is a big challenge. I mean, yeah. imagine you're on the phone with uh, your friends in the US, yeah, very direct, very down to the point. And the next minute you're talking to people in Japan. And uh, you'll have to have an extremely different approach. Yeah. And uh, look, I'll, I don't find it challenging. I like it because it's it's something that that make that makes you grow as a person, as as hopefully a leader. And quite frankly, I had such a big failure in Japan in in my previous uh, roles that I've learned big time from it. And we're we're probably going to benefit from it at IFS, hopefully, from the learnings I had. Yeah, in terms of culture and what you can and cannot do. So it's 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 something that that you need to embrace. Yeah. yeah. How do you support customers with creating real business value from their IFS system? Yeah, the question I waited for all the time. <laughs> um, I, I, no, we are, we are really passionate about it, and and I think the important piece is that customer success is not when it's delivered or when you when you've put software in place. Customer success starts at the very very beginning of any customer engagement. If I don't understand at the very beginning what the business value is that a customer intends to drive, and to be honest, by the way, through our process, many customers finally realize what they actually want yeah, from such a project through the methodology we use. It's called business value engineering. And that methodology, we start at the very beginning. So if we don't understand what a customer really wants, we stand no chance of providing value at the end. It'll be a 5% success rate. Yeah. So, so we start with that. We capture that. We we translate that into solution uh, design, into a scope uh, together with the customer, and then we deliver that and have customer success managers who then actually 
um, work towards that plan to measure whether or not we are successful. So have we actually driven the business value that was intended? And that methodology is end-to-end. -end. It's, it's, it's from the very first pre-sales engagement to then five years after deployment and, and, uh, and implementation, we try to stay connected to what was originally intended, what has changed along the way, and what do we need to change today to actually drive more business value or the same business value because your environment has changed. Well, wow, that's really good. So you don't just abandon them once they've purchased the system. You're there for five years holding hands and, yeah, cleaning up messes. <laughs> I, I hope we do, and I hope we do consistently. I would say that probably we also have examples where this didn't work for, for whatever reason and where it didn't work five years ago, where it didn't work today. But this is our ambition and this is our aspiration, and it's not just something we put on marketing slides. It is something that that we pride ourselves on, that, that we actually provide that value to our customers. And ultimately, that's the only way to have loyalty in your customer base. And we do have a very, very long-standing customer base, plenty of customers who are with us 20 years and more. So, so uh, the only way to achieve that is actually by staying close to them and understand what changes and, and hopefully what, what we can contribute to drive value. Yeah, and I guess that's how you ensure that the IFS experience lives up to that sales and marketing narrative. Absolutely. I mean, it's 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 just this consistency in in terms of how we drive, how we always try to understand the value we're driving and and whether or not we're living up to our promise. I can confirm the teams, I guess, more on the front line. Everyone's living and breathing it. So, to Michael's point, if we don't understand what success looks like to a customer, how can we or they ever be successful? And it's actually surprising how many customers don't actually, until you really sit them down and start giving them to think about it, they can't articulate it. Um, so it's it's a really important piece of the puzzle right at the beginning, as Michael says. I think when, you, when you've when you sat through that with different departments within the customer, so, so you, you're talking in ERP implementation, you've got the CFO office, you've got the COO, you've got some production, some supply chain people, you've got, you've got the guys in the field, field and service management people. And everybody will tell you different priorities uh, for a project. And then actually you collect them and, and you need them to come together as a customer because there's no such thing as a customer. There are many, many different stakeholders within what we call a customer and they all want different things. So, so aligning them around it is a big, big part of, of what we're achieving through the business value engineering process really. It's almost forming a partnership with a customer rather than seeing them as a customer. They're more of an ally, I guess. Yeah, if, if the customer allows us to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> IFS value assurance sounds great and seems a no-brainer. So can you summarize it for listeners? We've actually um, uh, digitalized the whole journey. Uh, we have started with, we've got a tool chain that starts with capturing business drivers uh, and business requirements that a customer has and the value they attach to it. We've got a huge database now of actually business values and business drivers that our customers say uh, are driving value for them and also how much value, what they set themselves as a benchmark to achieve. And from there, we push with other tools like our scope tooling and so on. We, we try to push a scope and a solution design that actually delivers on that 
and not golden door handles uh, uh, everywhere that actually nobody needs or are not driving value anywhere. Yeah. So it's really about focusing and zooming in on the few things that truly matter and that truly drive value for our customers and then taking them into delivery and taking them into post-delivery phases uh, where we provide our success services. And how are you measuring that success then? Is that a series of like uh, questionnaires? Is that feedback from customers? Is that something you can report out of IFS? Like, How do you measure that? Well, there's, there's different ways. Uh, the, the more subjective way of voice of customer, actually, we start voice of customer very early on in the sales process, actually, where we ask about the sales experience customers have through to then uh, support delivery and customer success management. So in all our, our lifecycle phases with a customer, we will have dedicated voice of customer studies that are uh, recurring. That's one way of measuring it. But the true way of measuring it is, we have set ourselves together with the customer standards in our business value engineering process around KPIs we want to achieve. And did we actually achieve them after we have delivered the project? We, we do measure that and we do discuss it with the customer and see whether or not we need to change things to actually then change some assumptions, change uh, some design, change workflows, change how we are doing things to make sure we actually capture the value that, that was intended. Yeah. And ultimately, customer success is when the customer stays with you for decades, really. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, previously, IFS, you've sort of upgraded every few years. Now, with IFS Cloud, is that still the case? Do you still need to upgrade or is it on an auto-upgrade situation now? So we, we are now on a, a six months. Uh, we can't, it, actually, it's not a release cycle because we don't do major releases anymore. IFS Cloud is, is something that is being developed iteratively and the update experience, because it's not an upgrade anymore, the update experience is a very easy one. It's, it's incremental updates. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty simple to stay evergreen. And we are not on, an, uh, on, a, on a every few years, there's a major release and a major upgrade project. Our notion is really staying evergreen and, uh, and making sure that our customers uh, can update easily and don't have to go through that pain anymore. That's really good because you've just taken out a whole daunting experience that many customers face. It's just gone now. <laughs> it is totally a game changer. It's interesting to see customers' mindsets change along with it. Yeah. So like you say, one of the days are you having to do a big project. Now they're almost looking at it as like a month end in finance in terms of I need to keep the system up to date at the end of the month, like just constant kind of to most point around evergreen and, and making sure that they've got, you know, the, the best patch solution that puts them in the best place for their business. So it, it, it is definitely a game changer. Do you, do you find that the uptake's been good? Are people moving across now to cloud? And is it predominantly cloud-based? Because I think IFS Cloud is not, somebody told me yesterday, it's not just cloud-based, it's on-prem as well. So how are you finding that transition? So uh, in terms, well, many questions in, in that right. one question. Uh, no, 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 that, that's that's great. Gives you an opportunity to, to, to talk a lot. Um, on the uptake, the uptake is phenomenal. We've got uh, no customer on the uh, first release that we had on IFS Cloud, which was 21R2 or 22R1. Yeah. yeah. Um, and 
those customers all have upgraded already to or updated already to the next uh, next release that was six months later. So there's no customer who hasn't done it and they have gone through that update cycle virtually without pain. Otherwise, you would still have lots of customers, which is an industry-specific problem on old versions. So this uptake is amazing and we've got uh, hundreds of customers already taken on uh, IFS Cloud. So upgrading to IFS Cloud and having that experience. Is IFS Cloud always in the cloud? Uh, we give customers the option at full functionality, so it's no two different products, to also deploy, we call that remotely, so within, within their own uh, data centers or in a cloud environment of their choice. So, so, But we also provide the cloud-managed services around it if customers choose to, uh, to do so, so that actually our, our customers have the full cloud experience. Yeah, so it's really tailored to that customer's needs, which is is great. And we hear lots of talk of composable ERP, best of breed. Do you see IFS as being a holistic ERP solution, or do you think that there's a composable sweet spot that you can plan in terms of functionality? Um, I'm sorry to have to say that, but I think we're both. So we are best of suite. So, so you've got everything you need from finance through to supply chain, manufacturing modules to service management and asset management on one platform. And at the same time, each of those parts, like service management, for example, is best of breed and is individually deployable. So you can compose the solution as a customer that you need. Yeah, and we are, we are from an architectural point of view very very composable, and we're not out there for world domination like some of our our, our competitors maybe. We want to provide the best solution to our customers, and uh, we we are we are okay and very very easy to integrate into our architectures as well into into an uh, overall enterprise architecture. So. Uh, I, I think what we what we deliver to customers is really the the optionality to do what's best for you with best of breed parts of our platform, or to actually use the whole integrated platform to drive the value you want. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I I personally work with people that have got big SAP systems that they've had for years and years and years, and some of the things that we're facing at the moment is well, what's that, what else is out there, and how do we how do we integrate that into what we've got already? Because we don't want to move all of this. We don't want to lose all of this, but we kind of want to see what that does too. So that integration between ERP systems, that's quite easy with IFS. We're extremely open from an architecture point of view. So as we're not out there for world domination, we inherently think openness. We, we, we always think about how do we integrate into larger infrastructures when we go to a large Fortune 500 customer and we're talking about asset management, that's that's okay to integrate into some of our competitors' environments, uh, be, be it on the CRM side or be it on the service management side or be it on the ERP side, finance, finance HR, and so on. So the, the whole architecture is API-based. We, we are open. We, we, are, we are trying to work every day to actually create more, uh, more API libraries and, and make sure that, that we help our customers to integrate us more easily because that's where we provide value and who are we to tell the customer that only we can provide value. And ultimately, it's helping us win, win the deals. It's been a massive USP for us. Yes, yeah, so that whole development piece is clearly customer-led, which is amazing. 
you're not just tinkering with technology, you're actually, you know, providing value. There's a purpose to it. So when we talk about women in ERP, our show, (laughs) have you found there to be gender inequalities throughout your working career? Absolutely. I mean, there, there are all sorts of inequalities and they're all driven by what, what we've tackled earlier, unconscious bias. Yeah. So, so inequalities can be in terms of pay, but also in terms of career opportunities, in terms of actually, do you get into a company? Yeah. Are you being accepted into a company, into a different, into a specific role? So uh, there's there's unconscious bias everywhere, which means Inevitably, there's there's inequalities of all sorts. Really, it's really interesting when you mentioned about CVs having pictures on them. Like instantly, that that's like a red flag to me because as as a woman, it's it's quite hard to get into this industry anyway. And maybe if it's like very glaringly obvious that you're a woman, maybe that it makes it even harder. Um, maybe that's something that needs to address it. <laughs> but we know from um, many conversations with staff that IFS are really inclusive as an organization and they actively support women in industry. What are some of the actions that you're taking internally to increase the male and female ratio and then also to retain it? Yeah, look, I think first of all, uh, you need to open the doors and you need to make sure that people who are closing the doors are aware of that. So when you write a job ad, very, very often it's discouraging for some people to get there because of the way it is written and, and specific requirements in there. So you you need to actually make sure that from a job ad to then writing the internal job description to then actually as an interview panel, you've always got that in mind. You're doing that consciously and you're looking at it and and it's not only male, uh, uh, white male people looking at how should it be worded, but actually that you've got a diverse team looking at all those aspects up to the interview panel. I mean, very often interview panels, you're in front of a very white male interview panel as as a female. And that can be daunting. And there's unconscious bias always because you're looking for traits that are very similar to you, which is one of the things you you unconsciously always do. Yeah. And uh, and so all of those things we're tackling. uh, And then when it comes to people being hopefully promoted within the company, we're, we're trying to be to have the female representation on all of those boards that decide and uh, and we we try to actually have the mentoring not just mentor females but actually have mentors uh, uh, female mentors and uh, uh, and make sure that we've got the ratios right so we bring up people uh, within the organization and we bring up female leadership within the organization so there's hundreds of things that you can do to to create a fair opportunity for everyone. And then actually it's up to everyone really within IFS, I think, at least I hope, to to make the best of it really and and take take the opportunity. Absolutely. From first hand experience, yeah, I can I can completely you know I've I've done the the courses or I've seen like uh, the training on um writing a job ad for instance to make it more inclusive. And it, it totally is. And I think everyone collaboratively working together in the same direction it's it's there we've we've got kind of the right diversity if that makes sense and mix of people because for me personally having that right kind of um a diversity across the team is so important because what you don't want to Mark's point is exactly the same opinions and conversations constantly you're just not going to be successful 
Um, so yeah, to kind of take the ball by the horns and you know take the opportunities when you see them. Absolutely. Is that a global initiative? Because obviously there are different cultures um, and different opinions of women and men and and the workforce. And so, is this a global initiative from IFS? Are your doors always open to female employees, no matter where in the world? Absolutely. I mean, there's there's no discrimination, hopefully anywhere, and we're trying to. Uh, and and look, I mean, you're working with the Middle East, with Japan. Make, making sure that those people are conscious and uh, is daily effort really. Yeah. You, you have to work on that every day to make sure that it stays that way, that it sinks in and that people understand that a diverse workplace is not only a much, much nicer workplace and it it's just a, a normality. It should be a normality and it's better for everyone really. It's better for the company. It's better for the manager. It's better for anybody in the workforce really. That's it. I've said it before in terms of, for me, just seeing role models in, in senior positions is really kind of inspirational, aspirational. Um, and I think, you know, if you're looking, you know, from my point of view, I see that within the business. So it's, uh, you know, it makes you want to work for a company like that. It's where I look around, um, uh, you know, say customers, partners, whatever it might be. That's where I see some challenges sometimes you know you go into a boardroom and to your point Michael it's kind of all just white middle-aged men and you think okay like and and quite often you don't get the conversation back to you so I think it's educating the teams around you as well um and by that I mean don't mean necessarily the closest ones that you're working with but but working with say customers and a lot of the time they're not realizing they're doing it and it totally is an unconsciousness um so I think it's yeah there's still a lot of work to do but we're Absolutely. I feel like we're pioneering the way quite a lot. Definitely. And, and look, I think one reason why we wanted to be here as well is because uh, outside of this small ecosystem within IFS, we need to make sure that not only male, but also female actually stop stop thinking about, for example, tech as something that, no, I, I don't do that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's not a female thing. Because quite frankly, <clears throat> no matter how hard we try, it is much harder to actually get uh, female applications mm-hmm. to tech roles, yeah, and pre-sales, delivery, uh, cloud operations. So, so it's hard to actually get the right female representation. So, so making sure that the female aspiration is there to actually go into tech. That that's that's one of the missions as well. Yeah. So that's kind of why we exist <laughs> to give that female voice. You know. <laughs> Do you think that having that diverse workforce is is ultimately beneficial to customers? Customers seeing that there are male and female representatives within your organization, do you think that helps? It, it absolutely does. I mean, it, it helps customers because you will have a much more balanced and a much more forward-looking and forward-thinking, not set in their ways type of organization that works with you. And and uh, is much more open to any type of opinions of uh, voices and so on. So absolutely, customers will benefit from that, and I think everyone really does benefit from from better diversity and better inclusion. Really. Yeah, and I think by setting this example, actually, this sounds a bit crazy, but <laughs> you are slowly changing the world. You know, if everybody thought this way and everybody acted this way 
then we would change the world. We would make it a better place. So it's just these baby steps that we all need to take to really make big impact. It's nice to know that IFS are kind of leading the way in that. Well, the little we can, we, can, we, we try to, you know. So you, you personally, you, you seem quite passionate about this. Is is there a personal driver? Um, wh- why? Why do you care? Actually, I'm, I'm probably I'm probably unconsciously biased in that direction because, quite frankly, it never occurred to me that actually it should there should be a difference. My parents, my grandparents, all of them were working couples, and uh, all of them were doing what they thought is best to actually create a family environment and and a and a inspiring environment for everyone really. And it never occurred to me that that it should be any different. So, so when I really got conscious of the fact that it is so different, yeah, outside of the little uh, microcosm that I was living in, um, it's just unfair and and it's not right. And I don't understand the purpose because, quite frankly, it it doesn't serve anybody well. It doesn't serve society well. It doesn't serve companies well. So so yes, I I am passionate about it, and I think everybody should have the opportunity to do what they want to do, yeah, no matter what it is. And if it is tech, we need to help them to get into tech. Absolutely. That's great, Michael. Sounds good. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we will let you go and celebrate your birthday now. <laughs> Any big plans? <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> no big plans now. I'll, I'll probably just have a family dinner tonight and uh, that's about it, really. Sounds good. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye.